How many of you have ever been on the receiving end of somebody showing an act of kindness to you, a stranger? Has anybody been on the receiving end of that? Cool. I wish I would have had those illustrations to use this morning for this sermon. This is great. So we even call the Good Samaritan in, in popular culture somebody who ministers to a stranger that they don't even know. But I believe in this passage this morning, we may not quite get the full impact if we don't understand exactly who the players are and who each of those people represent. And so is it a passage about social justice or four kinds of people or is there a bigger idea about this parable? I think it can be potentially one of the most misunderstood parables uh, in the Gospels. Now, giving you some background, we know that parables are hard to understand. That's why Jesus is always trying to explain it, especially to the disciples, right? And uh, the other time is we know that as we look at parables, sometimes they reveal spiritual truth to the believer or the hearer, but it obscures spiritual truth to the detractors or the, quote, religious folks that are kind of arguing with him. And final reminder about parables, in some way, shape, or form, all parables are salvation stories to some extent, and we'll see that in this parable as well. So let's get right to it. Grab your notes here. Uh, We're going to see the interaction in verses 25 to 29, and we start with the lawyer's trick question in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now, this is not a criminal defense lawyer. It's not a civil lawyer. Think more of a religious uh, expert, a law expert, uh, maybe a seminary professor might be an easier way to view who this guy is. But make no mistake, this isn't a friendly discussion. Uh, this is uh, an expert who wants to trap Jesus into saying something that he could later accuse him of blasphemy. In fact, some people think this guy was set to meet with Jesus by the higher-ups, so to speak, to trick Jesus in a way that he could uh, bring charges against him. Now, we know that Satan did that in the the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4.12, trying to put God to the test And what you're going to see, this lawyer thinks that he's, quote, good enough to merit favor with God, which we're going to see a little later just isn't the case. So what's amazing to me is how Jesus treats this guy with respect, even though he knows he's God, right? He knows this guy is trying to set him up. So the Lord gives him a little trickier question in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Uh, and so another way of saying, hey, buddy, you're the expert. Uh, what do you think? It's Think of a chess match. The guys that moved his piece, now Jesus has moved his piece, and they're going to see what happens here. The lawyer gives his official answer from verse 27, and you know this. Uh, you've heard it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and uh, your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a a quotation from two Old Testament passages, one of which you've heard, uh, the other one you may not be aware of. What is he quoting from the Old Testament? We have some Jewish scholars in here. He's quoting from the what? The Old Testament, we got that. What book? Deuteronomy, we got that. And it's called the Shema, right? The Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's quoted by every 
uh, Jewish household of that day. But that describes an impossible task of loving perfectly because only God can do that. The second quotation, the love the neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus 19.18, describing this perfect love for mankind. Again, which we can't do in and of ourselves. Now, this is two laws of a whole boatloads of, of ceremonial, uh, dietary, civil laws in the Old Testament. Does anybody know off the top of their how many they had? Have you ever heard that kind of obscure fact? There's 613 of them. 248 of them uh, are positive things. Do this. 365 are negative ones, which would be a horrible devotional book to have 365 days of negativity. Uh, but the bottom line is, that's a lot to take in and something that we could never, ever live up to. So then the Lord gives this unusual reply in verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's kind of the Nike answer. Just do it then. Go for it. The bottom line, though, is that task is absolutely impossible. And I want to make sure you're clear that he isn't suggesting a works-oriented salvation. We know that perfect holiness is the only entrance into heaven, and that's impossible. So Jesus Christ came as our substitute uh, and died on the cross for our sins. Now, how were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they're saved in the New Testament, by faith. Abraham's faith is credited as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, uh, Romans 4, 3. Now, what's the problem with this guy's question and answer? He think, does he think he's a good guy or a bad guy? Just what do you think? He thinks he's what? He's a good guy. He's a really good guy. And most of the people I talk to who don't know Jesus think they're pretty good people. Don't you think? Most people say, hey, I'm a pretty good guy because on the, the, the food chain of sin and dysfunction, we always place ourselves higher than God sees us. Now, we know that we're loved by God, but we're also sinners. So there's that, that dual tension. And so he thinks he's a pretty good guy. Now, uh, when people think they're good, who do they compare themselves to? Who did, just throw out some names. At least I'm better than Hitler is always the number one. Uh, and then if, you know, you live anywhere where there's been a mass murder, it's that guy, Charlie Manson or whatever. And then uh, some of you grew up Catholic. So you might have said on the flip side, on the, on the positive side, uh, I'm pretty good, but I'm no mother Teresa. So everybody kind of slots themselves, right? Somewhere on this, 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 this continuum. Well, as I talk to people and I ask people that are searching for God, I ask them these two questions. Uh, the first one, if you were to die tonight, would you know for sure you're going to heaven? And maybe you've been, you've received that question sometime in your past, or maybe you've asked it. Now, I can tell you with certainty that 90 Five percent of the time, they give me one of two answers. The first one is, yes, I know I'm going to heaven. Or what do you think the second most popular answer is? Yes, I hope so. Yes, that is exactly right. What's the answer I never get? Uh, no, I'm, I'm dead. I'm done. I'm toast. I'm going to that bad place. Uh, never hear that. Never, ever hear that one. So you got to ask the follow-up question. So what's the basis for why you think you are going to heaven, right? And the follow-up question you should ask is, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in heaven? What answer would you give him? 
right? What do you think for people who are seeking God, who aren't Christ followers, what's the number one answer they give me to that question? Because I'm a what? I'm a good person. And then they proceed to do this phrase that you probably are already thinking. I'm a good person because I haven't done what? Now, give me the first answer. That's the first one that always comes up. I haven't what? Killed anybody. I cannot believe this. Every, you've been there, right? And then the second one is I haven't killed anybody. And this is where we get some difference. I haven't what? What? I'm looking for robbed a bank. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> bottom line is you can pick your list of big sins, but they'll give that one. So again, God doesn't grade on the curve, right? In grading, it's perfection or nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so the, 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 this guy is caught now because uh, the lawyer realizes he's given Jesus a chess move that he can't beat. And so he stops Jesus in verse 29, and he says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, wait, wait, well, who is my neighbor? So imagine, he's kind of backpedaling in this debate, and he wants... Jesus know that he's a pretty good guy and he meets the qualification because he's a good neighbor. Now, again, this is not a friendly Mr. Rogers question. Won't you be my neighbor? By the way, how many of you know who Mr. Rogers is? Would you just raise your hand? If you don't know who Mr. Rogers is, ask anybody who just raised their hand. They will explain it for you. I get it. I get it. Nick at night may not carry it anymore. All right. And so this guy is so self-righteous He's uh, oblivious to his own spiritual depravity, right? Now, the religious guy, the lawyer, he knows that a neighbor could be what? The people who live next door to you, people you work with, a friend or a friend of a friend, but he never thought that it could be a stranger and much less it couldn't be like, you know, an enemy, could it, right? So, Jesus does with this guy what the Dodgers don't want to happen to them and let the umpire expand the strike zone, right? Jesus is expanding the strike zone to include a larger group of people who your, quote, neighbor could be. Now, this guy, he's well-read, but he, he knows from Leviticus 19.34, it says that they're told to love the stranger in their midst and to treat them kindly. He knows that's in the back of his head. Jesus kind of put the whole neighbor and enemy and persecution thing on its ear in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, where he says what? To love your enemies, right? Not just your neighbors, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you. So Jesus is going way beyond the call of duty. That strike sound is huge, so to speak. And this lawyer had a list of potential enemies, did he not? Let's just think through. What are some of the people this guy would not like to hang out with? The first big general category as a Jewish man is he doesn't want to hang out with who? Gentiles. That means he wouldn't want to hang out with most of you in the room. Now, by the way, we have a very cool contingent here of, of uh, Messianic or completed Jews who have seen Jesus as Messiah, uh, Yeshua. And so uh, that, that's a whole nother discussion. But the bottom line, that could be a group. Who else would they not, he not want to be hanging out with? What was going on around them politically? Who's in charge? Romans would be enemies. The yoke of Rome was on their backs. 
And so, and then there's this long simmering issue with the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans, all that? I'll talk about that in just a moment. But just to say that's not on his top 10 list of people he wants to hang with either. And the bottom line is this guy was in trouble because the question is becoming not who is my neighbor, but to whom can I be a neighbor? That's how it's going to twist on him in just a bit. So Jesus decides to tell a story to illustrate the point in verses 30 to 35. And you can see in your notes here, there are four kinds of people represented in this story. And that's the traditional interpretation of this passage. I'm going to give you the traditional one, and then I'm going to throw you a little curveball at the end to to take a little different take on this. Now, the wake-up call, by the way, in telling a story is to wake up this lawyer to his own spiritual arrogance. And we we remember that Jesus tells this story to expose the lawyer's thinking, all right? Just keep that in mind. And he begins to tell the most outrageous story. What are the first group of people? They're the robbers. And I'll start with this. What is yours is mine, and I will take it. That's the first group of people. Where do we get that? Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now, you've got to understand where this section is in Israel. I've been to that road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Scott's been on, we've been on the, those tour buses. It's, it's, it's two, Jerusalem is 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. It's a 3,000 foot drop in 17 miles. Is it like the 17 mile drive in Monterey? No, it's not that drive. It's a steep, treacherous, uh, hairpin turn place. In fact, if you've ever been on a tour bus, my wife and I had the unfortunate position of being in seat two on the right side as we made that left turn on one of those hairpin turns. And it feels like you're hanging off the cliff looking down a thousand yards. She squealed. No, she didn't, but it sounded good for the story. Um, And it was a little scary. Well, that road, that narrow road is where this guy gets uh, the, these robbers beat him up. Now, the interesting thing is this happened so often to people. This little section of road, they called it the bloody patch. And in fact, that, those experiences predate Jesus. Many scholars believe that when Jesus talks about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23, they're describing this section of road. So that puts that into an interesting perspective. So it's narrow, it's treacherous, be easily ambushed walking down. Now, these robbers and thieves left him for half dead, but the bottom line, they represent people in life who are takers. They view people as resources to be used. They are takers. They view people as resources to be used. Now, I want you to to relax for a moment because I'm not asking you to pick which one of these four kinds of people you are today. That is not the purpose of this sermon, and I'll tell you why at the very end. But that's the first kind of people. We do know this, however. Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite Bible professors of all time, I wish I would have studied under him at Dallas Seminary, says this, that we are to love people and use things instead of using people and loving things. And so these were users. They were takers. The second group is represented by the priest and the Levite. The priest says this, what is yours is yours, and I will 
will ignore it. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, we all have reasons why we pass by in our own lives, why we'd have excuses of not stopping for someone uh, who really is in need, usually because we're pretty busy people and our time's valuable. And uh, again, this is not a guilt trip sermon. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I'm just saying I get it. The guy was a religious guy. He's a busy guy. Uh, the understanding of this text is, you know, there's like 18,000 priests in Jerusalem and more lived in Jericho than lived in Jerusalem. And they were part-timers. And sometimes you'd only get to serve in the temple court like once a year or every couple years. We know that even from the New Testament with Zechariah, with his turn to serve in the court. And so um, most lived in Jericho, by the way, not in Jerusalem. So this guy's on his way home going downhill back to his home, having served in the temple. And isn't it easy for us to get caught, personally, if we do some application here, that those of us that traffic in, quote, religious things and activities, that sometimes the ministry is right before your very eyes. It's not what happens right here on Sundays. Maybe it's happening with what's happening down the street in your neighborhood or in your workplace. And God's offering you this opportunity to make be a difference. Um, I'm so grateful that we started the Canal Valley Meal Program, not so I can feel great about who I am, but between Scott and I and some of you, we do some little devotional right before dinner. But for a couple years now, one of the things that I enjoy most is just sitting and talking to the guys. Three quarters of the people there are men, right? And more than a meal, I'm finding these guys love the fact that someone takes the time just to listen and talk and have a conversation. For those of you who are good at that, may your tribe increase. But I realize there's a whole bunch of us that that's not your natural disposition to engage strangers that you don't know and come up with small talk with questions and whatnot. And it's a stretch for me. Even though I'm an extrovert, it, it, it's, it's a little awkward. And so I can see like this guy, I just don't want to get involved. I'm, I'm tired. I've had a long day. I preached nine times. I'm, I'm, I'm getting home. But the problem is... He's passing by a guy in need, and even in their own, in the Talmud, they have this thing called the rule of mercy, the rule of mercy that trumped all other rules and, and things that they were supposed to do. And that said, if you saw someone who was lying, uh, who might be dying, you had to stop and help them. And if they did die, you'd become ceremonial and clean, but you were required to stop, even if it was on the Sabbath, which broke all their other rules. So he should have stopped. And in fact, this is unbelievable, the way it was worded that even if your shadow crossed over them, you had to stop. So I'm going to let Tony be the mugged man this morning. He's going to come up and he's going to lay down in the, the, in the bloody patch right here. He's been beaten up and he's laying for dead. And he's crying for help, help me, help me. And he's trying, but notice the guy's walking by, and if his shadow touched him, he'd have to stop. Literally, this is what he does. As he's walking, he's looking at the scroll of Isaiah or whatever, and he hears this noise, uh, and, he's, and he's reading, he sees him, and he stops. He literally stops. And then he's calculating, and I think the way it goes, he's calculating so like his shoulder cannot touch him, and he's backing up against the rocks just so that that shadow that's coming close like can't even possibly touch him. 
That's going out of their way not to help someone, isn't it? Let's hear it for Tony the Mug. All right. Woo! And so that's that guy. He just walks around him. He conveniently forgets the Proverbs that say, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Or how about Micah 6, 8? Oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? He hurries by just because maybe the robbers are still in the air and he doesn't want to get mugged. But he shows zero love for this guy. He was a spectator. He was a spectator. He viewed the man as an inconvenience to avoid. He didn't want to be inconvenienced, possibly. Uh, Pastor Sean Thornton over at Calvary talks about, well, why didn't he stop? And I love his little three-point observation. He didn't want his status to be diminished. He didn't want his life to be disrupted. And he didn't want his hands to be dirtied. That hands would be dirtied. Literally, he'd be considered unclean, couldn't serve in the temple for, for seven days. But if you're only serving once a year, you got time to recover from that. So it was really kind of a lame excuse not to stop if that's really what was going through the guy's mind. Well, we get another chance, right? The Levite, he says this, what is mine is mine and I will keep it, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. He was like a temple assistant. They did the administrative work. They supported the priest. In our environment here, uh, you know, the analogy breaks down a little bit, but if Scott and I are, and Josh maybe are the priests, who are the, uh, the Levites in our organization? It would be not the elders, but like Nancy and Stephanie and Larissa and the administrative support behind the scenes. Now I was reading this and I was chuckling because I just was, I put myself, I put Stephanie in the, in the picture and I said, if Stephanie had been the Levite, it just blows the whole story and, and Jesus can't go because she would have stopped. In fact, if you don't know Stephanie, you, you are in for a treat. Just come by the office. She will lavish you with love, encouragement, kindness, pray for you on the spot. Um, you, probably, you may not know this, but I think, you know, she knows every one of the names of our, of our postal workers, the FedEx people, the Culligan's man, the water people. And something, she was gone uh, a week and a half ago, and someone came in, and is anybody here? I go, uh, just me, and Stephanie's not here? <laughs> no, I'm just mincemeat John's here, you know. Um, but that's the reputation she has. She is that kind, loving person. By the way, she, she would have blown the story. It just wouldn't work if she played that role. Um, but they had both seen the man. They both would have been ceremonially unclean. Uh, they had both been serving the temple. They're both going downhill, uh, but they didn't stop. They were spectators. And again, this isn't a guilt trip thing. I'm not pointing here like, hey, when's the last time you stopped for somebody and you should, I'm not doing that. That's not what this is about today. But it is interesting how God gives you a chance to apply this text. So some of you knew I got to go to a wonderful little getaway in May to Hilton Head, South Carolina. Very first night, we get moved into our, our place there. The guy is setting us up for that. We're going back somewhere to get something, and, and um, we see this, this homeless couple on the side of the road, right? And they're, they're hitchhiking, and they got a bunch of bags, and uh, Joe says, oh, 
this isn't good for them. They're not in the right place. Now, we got our wives in the car with us, and he says to me, he says, why don't we drop the girls off, and we'll go back and help this couple. And I wanted to be the one that said, I came up with that idea. I wish I would have been the ones, you know, doing that. But I wasn't. It was him, my friend Joe. So we dropped the girls off. We went back to find them. We found them on the road, and we started a conversation. Hop in. Where are you going? Now, we thought they were just going to be going over this little section about five minutes away. And he said, well, we need to get over to such and such. And I don't know, Bluffton, South Carolina was on the other side of town. And it was like 35, 40-minute drive. He said this, and Joe didn't even miss a beat. He says, that's fine. We'll take you. It's 40 minutes one way. That's what I'm thinking. I'm on vacation. I can't be inconvenienced. And in my heart of hearts, I just shrunk up like a a rotten vegetable because then I knew God was exposing the hypocrisy of my life. My friend Joe, who does this lavish ministry for pastors and missionaries, went the extra mile, and I got to be a part of it. And we talked, and we shared, and we prayed for them. And we did, I mean, and then, of course, what does he do? You would say, you never give them money because they might be using it for drugs. He whips out like a $20 bill, which was the only thing that was in his wallet, and gave him a 20. And then I'm thinking like, hmm, I've got a 20, but I got a lot of ones. (laughs) He goes from bad to worse. I won't tell you how much I gave him. It wasn't quite as much as Joe. (laughs) But isn't that how life is sometimes? We read the clear teaching of the text, and then God gives us a chance to do something great, and sometimes uh, we fumble the ball. The fourth group. What is mine is yours, and I will give it. What is mine is yours, and I will give it. Verses 33 and 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. He saw him. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured the oil and the wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, you got to understand the cultural context of this. The story is going just as planned. These guys had that little paradigm storytelling technique where there'd be two people that would do something or not do something, and the third person is always in their paradigm a good Jewish, average Jewish man who gets to be the supposed hero of the story, not a hated Samaritan. And so this story comes to a screeching halt. Just think whatever screeches, whatever puts you on your last nerve ending. That's what happens, you know. It's fingernails on a blackboard. Again, those of you who don't know what a blackboard is, <laughs> ask the Mr. Rogers crowd and they'll tell you what a blackboard is, right? Screeching vinyl, you know, scratching a record. Maybe that's, well, you got it, all right? The bottom line is, this is now troubling to this guy, because this isn't how the story is supposed to go. This is not how the illustration is supposed to be played out. See, the conflict between Jews and Samaritan at the heart of it was Rachel, uh, Rachel, was Rachel. No, it wasn't Rachel. It wasn't Leah. It was racial prejudice, right? There was real issues going on uh, between, they had huge cultural, religious, uh, and ethnic divisions, 
He's an enemy combatant, so to speak. Think undocumented migrant worker or maybe Islamic immigrant that you don't know well. And because of fear or assumption, you make judgments about people that may or may not be true. Think about it. By the time this has gone on, this Hatfield and McCoy kind of conflict has been going on for centuries, right? They don't even know why they got into it originally, some of these folks, but they just know you don't hang out with these folks. Or maybe it's a neighbor that you don't get along with, but the bottom line is they viewed each other with like a smoldering distrust. Now, why? What, what could cause two groups of people not to like each other? Well, what happened in history, and I'll go quick. The Israel was one nation with 12 tribes. In the northern kingdom, there were 10 tribes. In the southern kingdom, there were two tribes. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, took them captive, intermarried with them. They set up their own religious practices. Uh, there was all kinds of, they had their own you know, temple worship, etc., etc. And then to make matters worse, later on, Herod the Great, who's a Jew, marries a Samaritan. That really upsets the apple cart. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. So they're half-beads, they're traitors, uh, they, they disrupted things according to what they thought. And in fact, if you were going to insult a Jewish person, there are two ways you could uh, insult them. And the Jews did this with Jesus in John 8:48. They said he was demon-possessed. And worse than that, you're a Samaritan. Like, oh, ooh, you're a, you know, like we've looked at it like, what's the big deal? But that was the ultimate yo mama insult, <laughs> insult, right? Now, it makes a breaking point in Passover in 10 AD when Josephus says they defiled the temple by throwing pig's blood on the altar during Passover, them as fighting words, and it was, it was done. I mean, it, it's, it, it's irretrievable tension and division. So the Samaritan, the enemy, the guy that's not supposed to be getting any credit does what? Look at all the things he did. All those are active verbs. I won't go through it all, but he stopped, he took care of him, etc., the most amazing thing is he gives them enough money to care for this guy to last him two months. Got him checked in, and, and then they'll say, I'll pay the rest of the bill. Two months worth. And so the Samaritan viewed other people as to be loved. As people to be loved. And he modeled that. He loved in spite of, not because of. He didn't care that that was a Jewish man. He was in need. He was going to take care of him. Blown the story for this guy. So, Jesus makes his last chess move. The instructions, verses 36 and 37. Jesus talking, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A couple observations uh, notice how Jesus just asks a lot of questions and let the guy do the answering, which always is a great place to be if you're talking to someone. Just ask questions. Help me understand how you came to that position. Tell me where you read that. Uh, how, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Jesus is the master at doing this. And notice the guy says, not the Samaritan, right? He can't even utter the words. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. And so Jesus changed the question. It's not who is your neighbor, but rather are you 
a good neighbor. And so he says, do the same. So the, the lawyer is out of chess moves. I mean, he's done. He's caught. I mean, he, he sits in stunned silence. And I am pretty sure he's thinking, I could never love like that. I could never bring myself to do that. This is impossible. And by the way, when you get to that place in your life, when you say, this is impossible, I could never do that, perfecto mundo. That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be, where you say, uncle, I give. I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. And so what is the intent of the story? I want to suggest to you there are four kinds of people, but there's a deeper meaning here. And we've looked at them, so let's review. The religious expert or the lawyer, he's the debater. And maybe you've met people in your life. All they want to do is they see others as problems to discuss. And they always will have one more question. They rarely take any practical action. They tend to overthink things. They, they can't escape this conclusion, though. They're the debaters. The thieves and robbers are the takers, right? They view others as resources to be used. And we've looked at that in detail. The priest and the Levite, they're the spectators, right? They view others as inconveniences to avoid. And number four, the Samaritan, he's the neighbor. He views others as people to be loved. So I'm not here to, for you to select one of those four uh, choices as, hey, which one am I? That's not the purpose of this because there's a greater purpose. But I want, to, want you to hang on to those four for a minute because I was, as I was preparing for this, one of, the, one of the issues is, is I want to preach out of integrity and, and authenticity. And, and I'm preparing for this, and I'm thinking through that whole thing. If I were on the receiving end, who is my neighbor? And I've got neighbors, and I don't know them very well. And, but I have one neighbor who lives above me that in particular I thought was a pretty good neighbor. And then something went horribly wrong in a text message on January 1st. And he thought I had insulted him because I couldn't hear about a darking, a, the, the sum of it is there was a, do, a barking dog down the street that I couldn't really hear. And he wanted me to call the police and join in and get this neighbor. And I, I don't, I, but I couldn't actually hear the dog barking. And so I make this joke like in the text, like, yeah, I'm deaf. He goes, open your door. And I so I just still can't hear him. He says, you're deaf. I go, yeah, yeah. My wife says I'm deaf. I, I get it. You know, and I'm, I think it's a playful dialogue well, I don't realize is he blocks me from January 1st, and I don't know that future texts aren't being responded. And I text him in a few days later and what on some other things, and it dawns on me by the middle of February, he didn't respond to my phone calls, and we kind of November 9th bonded us together with the fire. He stayed, and I went, and he kept, you know, told me what was going on with my house, and so I'm perplexed, and all of a sudden this trash ends up on my side of the property. It's his trash, like empty boxes, and so I call him, and go, hey, I think there's something's going on. People are throwing trash on our property. I said, our properties, because we have a fence line. And then he texts me back. This is in the middle of February, saying I blocked this call months ago when you insulted me. I, had, I didn't think I had insulted him. And I, and I reread the text. I showed it to many people, and I responded with, oh, I'm so sorry. This is a misunderstanding. Can we talk? Can we, you know, nothing. Nothing happens in February. I don't see the guy. I don't see him in February. I don't see him in March. I pray for him. Pardon me, I'm praying for 
You know, like David, the imprecatory prayers, like, slay the evildoers. I didn't insult you. I didn't really do that. But, you know, but you're kind of justifying yourself. Like, I tell, what's wrong with this guy? Why, why is he being such a jerk? And then I'm being convicted, like, oh, you should walk over there. And one point, Cheryl says, like, around Easter, maybe we should bring him cookies. No, I'll think we're poisoning him, you know, or, <laughs> right? So we, but we literally don't see the guy. Don't see him in February. Don't see him in March. Don't see him in April. Don't see him in May. Don't see him. Literally don't see him in June. And now it's two weeks ago and I'm preparing for this and I'm saying, Lord, make this real in my own heart. And the Holy Spirit goes, why haven't you gone over and knocked on his door, patched things up? He's your neighbor, good Samaritan, you know? Because <laughs> apparently I'm the, the bad guy. And I argued for God with like 30 seconds. And I said, okay, okay. So, Lord, without being making it weird, could you just make our paths cross today? That's the literal prayer I pray. I leave my house that morning. I'm backing my car out, and for the first time in six months, I see his really nice car. Scott, you would know what it is, but it's like a Ferrari, one of those kind of cars, right? And, and he calls out, and he stops. I don't know if he stopped to let me back out, so I stop letting him to go by me, because then I could, we'll meet, Right? He doesn't move. I wait. He waits. It's the fast and the furious, right? <laughs> so I back my car up. I go down our dry, steep drive. I go to the bottom of the hill, which you can't get by, by. I turn my car on. Now I'm facing forward. He's facing down, and I'm waiting. What are we going to do? And I'm thinking, he's got to come eventually. I can't hold this road hostage. And, and I, I probably was only couple minutes, but it seemed like for eternity. I said, Lord, please, this is the day. And he comes slowly down the hill. I think he knows I'm sitting down there. I roll down my window. Uh, see, I didn't roll over. I did this. <laughs> the windows go down. <laughs> Dang, every young whippersnappers, I don't have a car like that. <laughs> I rolled it. Anyway, I, uh, and I put my arm out and I'm like waving him. I didn't get out of my car. I didn't think he would hit me, but I thought, no, no, just wave my arm. He comes down. Zzz, he looks over. And I said, we'll just call him Fred. Hey, Fred, um, I don't know what happened on January 1st in that text, but I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. I sent you the text. I don't know if you ever read it. And as I'm trying to do this apology, he stops me. He said, it's not your fault. I was a total jerk. I've been in a really bad place. And I was angry. And I had to find someone to take it out on. That's a Jesus moment for me. I never have. I'm always the bad guy. I'm the wrong guy. And this guy apologized. And I just like, I said, no, no, no. Um, can, can we just re... There's, uh, thank you, but can we just rewind the tape? Can we go back to November 9th and just be neighbors and friends again? He said, I'd like that. I said, I would too. We went our separate ways. I had to turn around and go back out. And I haven't really talked to him in two weeks. I, I still don't see the guy. But he's my neighbor. And God intervened. And so if, don't take these list of four things as, oh, another legalistic thing I got to do and I don't measure up and I feel guilty. But if you can take one thing from this, from those four things... Just pray that God gives you opportunities to make a difference in people who may misunderstand who Jesus is. 
And you're the supposed enemy as the Christian. And if you just had a chance to show the love of Jesus, they get to see who the ultimate good Samaritan is. Amen? And so here's the curveball that I want to throw you. Jesus is reminding us that the ultimate good Samaritan is him. He's not saying you need to become the good Samaritan. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. It's not us. He's the perfect example of love and compassion. So ultimately, this isn't a nice little story about compassion or social justice or being kind. It's not about buying a homeless guy a, a hamburger. It's, it's not food stamp love. It's not moralistic social justice. This isn't about working harder to be nice and compassionate. It isn't adding something else to your moral to-do list. The issue is we can't love like that. We'll ultimately fail. But, side note, if you see someone, if you see Tony on the side of the road, stop, help people, make a difference. Because, quite frankly, as Christians, we want to make a difference in this world. We want to show love and compassion. And this parable illustrates that only Jesus can love with such lavish, reckless abandon. Because in the story, quite frankly, friends, we're the half-dead person laying on the ground. And it was Jesus who met us in our time of great spiritual need. And you were once lost, and now you're found. You were dead, and now you're alive. He's the one who redeems your life from the pit. Last hour in the fourth row, there were eight people sitting there. They are all people who lost their homes in the Seminole Springs fire. And we've been showing God's love and compassion to them. Even as Cordway begins to play, I want you to think about something. You know, they came today because I asked them to come. And I said, um, I think some of our folks at ABF would like to put a name and a face. They've been praying for you. They love you, but they don't know you. Would you come? And they actually showed up. And the first of those that showed up started coming right after our serve day. His name's Houston. He has a handlebush mustache. And the whole board was here. And they got to experience that kind of love. I asked permission, by the way, for you introverts. I didn't want to embarrass them. We talked it all through, and they so happy to be here. They got to meet Pastor Scott and many of you. But ultimately, we're not that good Samaritan. It's Jesus who plays that role. And today, if you're far from God, or you don't know him, or you're hoping to figure out where he fits in your life, can I just tell you one last time that Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is the savior of your soul. He's the one who picks you up when you thought life was hopeless. He's the one who's the difference maker. And so we do Conejo Cares and the meal program and acts of kindness to share the love of Jesus, right? Because there's a lot of humanitarian aid organizations out there, but we don't do this in a vacuum. We do it because Jesus compels us. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
And so today, Lord, we thank you that the gospel that you brought us changes lives. I'm so glad that I don't have to measure up or or feel bad about what I haven't done today. But ultimately, you are that good Samaritan. You're that perfect model of love and compassion. If you would just let a little of that spill over through our lives, may you give us opportunities to make a difference today in the lives of people who need Jesus, who want to see real love demonstrated through hands, hearts, together. And so, Lord, may we be those people. Thank you for being our hope, that you're our rescuer, that you bandage our emotional wounds, you heal us spiritually, you care for us in ways that we could never repay. Thank you for being our good Samaritan. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's been quite a morning, and maybe today you found yourself in that place, in a, in a tough place. May Jesus be that good Samaritan to you that reaches out and takes you right where you're at. If you want to talk about what that looks like, there are people who will be coming up afterward. You can pray with us. I'm here. Scott's here. Our greatest joy as pastors here is to help people understand what a relationship with Jesus really looks like and how it fits together. And so that's something you're interested in. We'd love to talk to you. You have a great Sunday and uh, God bless you.